Welcome to all the old listeners and a big welcome to the new listeners. Uh, Just as a point of information, we are now found on Spotify, Google, Amazon, and Apple. So if you can't find me, it's because I'm hiding under a rock. I like it there, it's warm. So today, let's talk about one of the plagues of our society. Depression. Why do I say it is one of the plagues of our society? Because almost everybody has either experienced it, know somebody who has experienced it, or had to deal with it, like help with it, a family member or a good friend. It's kind of the COVID plague, to be perfectly honest, only there's no real vaccination for it. It's nobody doesn't know somebody who has had or dealt with depression. But you're thinking, "Uh uh-huh, Mandy, I don't know anybody. Okay, why is that? Because people don't like to talk about it. Because there is a stigma with depression that should not be there and makes it very difficult for people who are dealing with depression to get any real help. It makes them feel judged. It makes them feel weak. It makes them feel like they did it to themselves. As a society, we need to change that way of thinking. And yes, I know. We have, as a society, been saying that for as long as I can remember. We need to reduce the stigma of mental illness. Yeah. And nobody does. So the thing that I call depression when I'm having people deal with it, I call it emotional cancer because that's how it shows up. That's how it looks. That's how it works. And that way you don't have to deal with the stigma of I'm making this up. I really hate the just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get out of bed and function. Yeah. When you have real depression, you cannot. I will tell teenage, well, I'll tell their parents. When I get teenagers in my office who have bad, severe depression, that they need to back off from their schoolwork. And their parents look at me and say, why? I said, because they're not present anyway. They aren't there mentally in school. They aren't there emotionally in school. And then they come home and feel like a loser, worthless failure because they can't pull it together and just do their math class. I mean, how is that so hard? Well, I don't know. If the federal government considers depression to be a disability under the American Disability Act, then it requires a lot to take care of it, to deal with it, to manage it, to work with it. It's exhausting. It is so exhausting. I had this sweet little 11-year-old boy. His mom brings him in and I start dealing with all of his issues. And yes, depression was one of them. And I told his mom, I said, here's the thing that's going to happen. You're going to see him be exhausted. She's like, he's an 11-year-old boy. (laughs) Yes, I know. 
And I do know that 11-year-old boys have endless energy. However, emotional exhaustion doesn't care if 11-year-old boys have endless energy. And his mom texted me this one afternoon and said, he's curled up with a soft blanket in the closet. And I said, then let him. Just go there and tell him, hey, I'm here. I know you're there. You just be there for a minute. And when you're ready to come out, I'm still here. So that they know they're not alone. Because depression comes up in isolating and stuff like that. We'll talk about that in a minute. So the thing about it is it takes a lot of work to deal with this. And we need to give kids as much of a break as we give adults. So I tell people with depression to pull back. Now, the reason I do this is because (laughs) I happen to be an expert in depression. Not because I want to be, but because my life went that direction. Now, super thrilled about that, but at least it benefits you. My mom had depression when I was growing up and she checked out and I got to step in as the adult. Uh, When I was eight, I started taking care of my younger brothers because my mom didn't have the wherewithal to do it. And the stigma was so bad that she wouldn't go get help for it. Now, every bad thing that has happened to me in my life has happened between um, a couple of months throughout the years. Why that happened, I have no idea, but that's the way it happened. And so I have situational depression. Now, my husband, he has very severe major depressive disorder, which is an official diagnosis from the mental health arena. Uh, He had to be hospitalized for his. So you have all of these people that I have, all of these people that I have had to work with, encounter, live with, and then I became a therapist. (laughs) I became a therapist before I got married. I was single when I first started working, and I worked in a psych hospital in downtown Chicago, and we worked with the big five mental illnesses, uh, manic, bipolar, depressive, schizophrenia, and schizoaffective. These are heavy hitters. They will disrupt your life. So I had dealt with depression on an institutional professional level before I ever got married. And I read all the books and I looked at the people and how they were dealing with the depression and or not dealing with the depression and what we were doing to try and help them. And I would go to family meetings and I would say, just go home and do this and this and this, because that's what my textbooks told me. When my husband, when I had to put him in the hospital for his depression, I came home and wanted to call up every single one of those family members and apologize for sending them home with nothing to use and no way to deal with their family member's depression. Because there is such a difference in reading something in a textbook and having to live it 24-7. Now, I'm going to give you a statistic here that shows how difficult that is. The divorce rate in a couple where one of them has a severe mental illness is 80%. Yeah, not good odds. And when my husband was in the hospital, I was the only spouse that went and visited 
None of the other patients there had anybody come and visit them. Partly, my husband's roommate, his wife, didn't feel like it was a real issue and he just needed to get his act together and do his job. That's part of it. Part of it is the stigma. When my husband was hospitalized, he wouldn't let me tell anybody. He didn't want anybody to know. There were certain people that I talked him into letting me tell so that I could get some support, but overall, he wanted to keep it on the down low. So after a while, he got out of the hospital and he was trying to reclaim his life. And I told him, go talk to your manager. He'd been friends with his manager and he sat down with his manager and his manager had dealt with depression and had to work through that. Neither one of them knew. When my husband got out of the hospital, a lot of our friends were like, oh yeah, I dealt with depression. Oh yeah, I had to deal with depression. Oh, I did too. And it's like, oh, and now you're seeing the plague of society, okay? Now, why are all these people willing to say it when somebody else comes forward? Because of the stigma. Because when you tell somebody, I'm dealing with depression, they look at you and say, yeah, I've been depressed before too. No, a bad day or grieving the loss of a loved one is not depression. That is feeling sad. Now we call it feeling depressed, but it isn't. Because depression is not sadness. Depression is pain. 100% pain. It can come from genetics, it can come from chemical imbalances, and it can come from a lot of trauma altogether, but it's still pain. So that is the first thing that I tell clients about depression is that it is pain. It is not sadness. And it does not always manifest in being tired. Now, yes, I just got done telling you that you'll be emotionally exhausted. Yeah, exhausted is the same as trying to say, I had a bad day, so I understand your depression. (laughs) Depressive tired is exhaustion. Being tired is not depression. So there's the difference there, all right? So when you're looking at it, and I say it is emotional cancer, you can't see it. You cannot tell where it's showing up in your life. The treatment for it is brutal. It will wear you out and exhaust you on levels that you never knew you had. And if you don't take care of it, it will kill you. It doesn't just kill in suicide. I have known some people with depression that have just given up, climbed into bed, and wouldn't take care of themselves. Yeah, that kills you. You've got to take care of yourself. I also know of people with depression who have tried to make themselves feel better. And the way that they think that they're going to make themselves feel better ends up killing them. So suicide isn't the only way to die from depression. You can die from not changing, not managing, and not taking care of yourself. These are all bad things about depression. 
Now, depression will manifest itself in anger a lot more than it will in tired or sad. My husband was very angry when we first started working on his pain. Now, here's the interesting thing. When I first started dating my husband, he had a temper. Oh my goodness. And when he worked on cars, it, it increased exponentially. I was always afraid to walk out because I never knew what swear words and tools would come flying out from underneath the car. And he, but I watched this temper that my husband had. And when his dad was around, my husband's temper was worse. Like, huh, that's interesting because my husband doesn't like hurting other people and he doesn't like being mean and he doesn't like being angry and he doesn't like being rude. He doesn't like being any of those things. He will beat himself up before he will take his anger, depression, whatever out on anybody else. So the fact that it was increasing wasn't his way of getting back at his dad. It was his dad was still causing pain and the temper was trying to cover that up. It doesn't work that way, obviously. As we dealt with all of the pain that caused my husband's depression, that made it flare up, that made it so bad, he lost the anger and didn't need the temper. When I tell people that my husband does not have a temper, but he used to, I get the same look as when I tell people that I'm shy and introverted. <laughs> no, that's not possible. Yes, because my husband shows up as the sweetest man you've ever met. And yet, all of that pain. Now, there are several ways that I can gauge if somebody actually has depression. One, I ask them what color they are. Now, people who do not have depression look at me like, what are you talking about? Look at their skin color and tell me what their skin color is. Like, yeah, then you are not dealing with depression. You're dealing with other issues. People who are dealing with depression, and you might think, well, Mandy, they'll just go straight to black. So how is that telling? <laughs> they don't go straight to black. I get red, blue, gray, or black. And very, very little of my responses are black. Now, I had a friend who was dealing with depression and he is colorblind. And I asked him, I wasn't thinking at the time because my friend doesn't show up as colorblind all the time and only when he wears two different color shoes to work and we all laugh at him. But I said, what color are you? And he looks at me and he says, I don't know, I'm like concrete. And I said, isn't that interesting because concrete's gray. So even when they don't know their colors, they still show up in depression colors. So that's one of the ways that I can tell. The other way that I can tell if somebody actually has depression is when you say, depression is not sadness, depression is pain. And they look at you like they've been heard for the very first time. We're gonna address just a few more existential points about depression before we get into the nuts and bolts of it. The one is when my husband was 
in his really bad depression, I did what I call circle the wagons. It's an old time phrase of when people were on the frontier and they were afraid of threats around them, they would circle up the wagons and that was their perimeter to keep them safe. So I put all the supports in place that I needed and my husband needed in order for us to get through this situation. And I would have people ask me all the time, how's he doing? I'm like, well, he's struggling. This is hard on him. Um, he's having a really bad day or, you know, he didn't do so hot with this activity or whatever. And they'd always look at me and say, but he was great when I saw him. Well, duh. Who wants to put their worst foot forward? We've already talked about the stigma of depression and the shame that, and the personal bias that goes along with that, with people thinking that they did it to themselves. So if they're hanging out with people that they care about and they don't want them thinking badly of them. So my husband would put on his best happy face and do the activity and then come home and collapse because it was so much energy and effort that he just couldn't keep it up anymore. Now, it's a backhanded compliment, which I will take, but it was, you are my safe place. I can fall apart around you and I know it won't come back on me. But they're not going to show up in society the way that they're going to show up in private. Nobody does that. And it doesn't matter if you have a really bad illness or if you have a hangnail. You are not going to be your worst self in front of others. So the other thing that I would get is um, people would say, oh, I don't know how you stay married to him. If my husband were doing this and not working and lying in bed all day, I would divorce him. Okay, if my husband were doing that, I would too. But it wasn't my husband doing that. It was the depression doing that. You will never hear me say my husband's depression I do not talk like that. Depression is separate from who my husband is. And that monster, when it comes out, I have to deal with. But it is not my husband when that monster comes out. It is full on the depression. So I do separate the two. I do talk about it like uh, my husband has asthma. I never come up to him and say, so sweetie, your asthmatic self today is not functioning correctly. No, I'll ask him, how's your asthma doing? Do you need to take your inhaler? Do you need to do a treatment? It is an illness just like every other illness. If you're not embarrassed and ashamed to have heart disease, why are you embarrassed and ashamed to have depression? So I don't talk about it as if it is my husband's identity because it is not his identity. That is not the person I know and that is not the person he wants to be. So existential crisis averted, we can now move on to the nuts and bolts of it. Now I've told you before that I got my bachelor's in music therapy and so you will see me draw on a lot of that knowledge to supplement and reinforce other things that I have figured out. 
The reason I'm saying this is because you'll see me do a lot of things in threes. Now, the reason I do things in threes is because the three, four meter is the most relaxing meter to the brain. It is the meter that most lullabies are in. So I use that to help the brain calm down a lot quicker. So that's why I do things in threes. Now, whenever I get a client who has depression, who is dealing with depression, and they say, Mandy, teach me how to control this. I need to control this. <laughs> you can't. It's not going to happen. Because depression is 100% negative and 100% selfish 100% of the time. It is nothing else. You cannot expect it to be anything but that. How are you supposed to control that? And I look right at him and I say, no, I don't do that. But I will help you learn how to manage your depression. I will help you learn how to manage your depression all over the place. And that is what I had to do with my cancer. I couldn't control my cancer. I couldn't control when I needed a surgery or when I needed to sleep a billion hours or when I was in pain and agony or when I was, you know, all the medical garbage that goes on with that. I can't control that, but I can manage it. So there's another, you know, correlation with the emotional cancer, all right? So the first thing I tell them to do is get a notebook. It is, and most of my clients call it their Mandy journal, but it is a notebook specifically for this purpose. Don't muddy it up with everything else. This needs to be very depression oriented or it isn't going to work. Now, the other thing I do is I tell people why what I tell them to do works. And so you're gonna get the explanation from me, okay? So you get a notebook, and the first thing that you're going to do is you're going to do what I call the three and three. Three and three. That was for the video people. So the first three that you need to do when you are writing in your notebook, and I encourage people to do this before going to bed because it will relax your brain a little bit more at bedtime, and depression really does make it very hard to sleep. It doesn't make it difficult to stay in bed, close your eyes, and think you're sleeping, but it does make it very difficult for you to have that healthy REM restorative sleep. So do it at night before going to bed. The first three that you're going to do is three things that you are thankful for. Now, sensory memories are the most powerful memories that we have. We can't block them. My grandma used to use baby powder. She put it everywhere, uh, put it in her drawers. It was the freshener of the day. And so whenever I smell baby powder, I'm immediately brought back to those memories of baby powder with my grandma. So I, uh, I need you to incorporate as many of your senses as you can in this process. If you just think these things, it will not work. And I do have clients come back and say, Mandy, it didn't work. And I said, well, tell me how you did it and let's figure out why it didn't work. And they're like, well, I would think about it because I'm always grateful. Like, oh, yeah, no. It has to engage the senses. It has to be a sensory memory or it isn't going to work. So you write it down as you're thinking it. You see it. You acknowledge it, you feel it, so it engages a lot of your senses, okay? 
Now, I don't care what you're thankful for. It can be big, small, backwards, forwards. I don't care. But it has to be something you are actually thankful for. So if you're thankful for pizza, then be thankful for pizza. If you're thankful that you don't live somewhere else, then be thankful you don't live somewhere else. I don't care what it is. It just needs to be sincere. And you can't dial it in. (laughs) Now you're seeing how old I am. This means don't repeat the same thing over and over and over again. All right? That won't work either. You got to mix it up. Your brain knows when you're lying. So this being grateful increases our dopamine in our brain. You know, your dopamine is your happy hormone. So this allows you to decrease cortisol levels of stress and increase dopamine levels of happiness. You start feeling better just by doing this. The next three is three things that you did right that day. Now, once again, I don't care what it is, but you also can't dial it in. Now, the reason this one is such a big deal, try it and see how hard it is to actually come up with something that you think you did right, and then don't put negating factors on the end of it. I have people practice this with me so that I can tell them, okay, that really wasn't something you did right. That was something that you hope I believe you did right. So it's the difference between today I showered, that one is something you did right. Or, well, today I was laying in bed and I got up and showered because I didn't want to do anything else. Do you see the difference? And it can increase on that level a lot, depending on how good you are at playing victim or martyr. So we have what are called neural pathways in our brains. And the thing about it is we can change these neural pathways. It just takes a little bit of refocusing. Sometimes I get trauma pathways that are Grand Canyon deep. Other times I just get a habit here or there. Either way, your depression neural pathways are hurting you. So this, you are doing something right. First of all, when people are in their depression, I told you it's 100% negative. So they don't think they're doing anything right. The other thing is I am reconfiguring your neural pathways. I am getting them to go over instead of continuing to reinforce the trauma, the depression, and everything that goes in with that. So that's why we do the three things that you did right that day. Now, these are not positive affirmations. I do not believe in positive affirmations. They don't work. I just told you your brain knows when you're lying. So if you're sitting in your depression and you think that getting up and standing in front of a mirror and going, oh, I got this. I look good from head to toe. I have got this going on. I am on top of this. Your brain is going to go lie, 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 lie and kick it all out. So it has to be not something that you think you did good or something good about you. You're in depression. You don't think anything good about you. So it has to be three things that you did right. Your brain can't kick that out. If you can't 
get on board with the right, then get on board with the healthy. Three things you did healthy that day, okay? The last of the threes is you need to write down three things that other people did right for you. So if my daughter brought me a glass of water, I can write that down. If my husband cleaned the kitchen, I can write that down. If somebody said hi to me or asked me how I was doing and sincerely wanted to know, I can write that down. Again, can't be dialed in and don't do the same three people over and over and over and over again. When I was going to school for my master's degree, we had to do uh, mock counseling sessions and we were told to get different people. And half of the class chose their parents. And that's the only thing they ever did was sit down and talk to their parents. How does that help? It doesn't. It gets you into the same rut. What this does is it gets you realizing that you are not that horrible, terrible, awful person that nobody wants to have anything to do with. It stops the isolation ideas because you can start seeing that even though you don't think you deserve it, they're still doing it. And it's hard to refute that fact. Now, the last thing that you need to do with this Mandy Journal, three and three, when you get ready in the morning to get up and do your day, you need to go and look in the mirror. You need to tell yourself, I am enough. And you need to walk away. I am enough, period. Nothing else. I am enough. This is not a positive affirmation. This is a fact. You are enough. You have everything you need to become the person you want to be. You just don't know how to access it. And yes, I have said that before, but it is very applicable. So you say, I am enough, and you say, period, and you walk away. Now, you're going to start feeling it on a very surface level. If that's all it is, then you need to work at making it go deeper. And I do make clients say it to me until they can feel that it's gone deeper, and you can feel it. Now, the other thing that you can do in managing your depression is you, I call it a depression list. There are three different types of lists of activities that I have people do determinant on what they're working on. So there's the anger releasing list, there's the stress reliever list, and there's the depression list. They have to be different because they're three different things. So something you would use for a stress reliever isn't going to help you with your depression. And you need to recognize that. Too many people say, so if I go to the gym, and I'm like, well, do you like going to the gym? Well, no, I do it because I like the feeling afterwards. Then in your depression, you're not going to go because depression is 100% selfish and it's going to sit there and talk you out of it. So I say to have a minimum of 10 things on this list. And why? Because you're going to look at it and you're going to go, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to. All right, fine, I'll deal with that. Depression activities are activities that do not take a lot of thought and a lot of energy, but get you out of your current situation and help you see that you could do something else. For women and some men, my brother likes to do this, we like to paint our nails. 
So put some colorful nail polish on your nightstand. If you don't feel like getting out of bed, open up the nail polish and paint colors on your nails. This is a depression activity because it gets you focusing on colorful, it gets you focusing on self-care, and it's a distraction from how horrible you are as a person. Now, I also like to keep a book by my bed. I do comics when I'm in my depression. Do not do Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, please. You are not going to even pick the book up. The title is heavy enough. Get something that is light. If it has to be a Dr. Seuss book, get a Dr. Seuss book. One fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish is not hard to read. It's colorful. It's fun. It distracts, but it also helps you not feel like you are a horrible, worthless human being. Sometimes you'll even chuckle. Ooh, that can't happen. I'm in my depression. Well, it can because that's getting out of your depression. My husband likes to listen to jazz music while doodling. That's one of his depression activities. Uh, I used to like coloring. Uh, I like to play the piano. I also, a good hot shower is so nice because you can just go in, I sit on the shower floor and I just let the water run over me until I feel like I can maybe be a person. So, I hope that gives you some ideas of things that you can do for depression activities. You can go for a walk. You can walk your dog if you have a dog. You can do pet therapy, you know, snuggle with your dog. Please do not do video games, movies, or YouTube because those do not help you with your depression. <laughs> They're not bad activities, but they are not depression activities. So I get teenagers. So Mandy, can I stare at my phone? No, you cannot. Does that do anything to help you feel like you're a better person and you could maybe do something? Well, no, but it distracts me. Exactly. So knock it off. You cannot stare at your phone to get yourself out of your depression. Now, if your depression is severe enough, that just managing it with techniques and strategies is not working, then get into your doctor and get on some antidepressants. Antidepressants are not Satan's drug. They do not change who you are. What they do is they raise your baseline so you have more wherewithal to actually manage your depression. My daughter has severe anxiety and I couldn't reach her. So I took her into a child psychiatrist and we got her on medication. She was terrified that it was going to change who she was as a person. I said, first of all, I am your mother and I'm not going to allow that to happen. So she took it and I saw her body breathe for the first time in years because she could finally raise her baseline enough to start managing her anxiety. These antidepressants are not evil. They are necessary when they are necessary. Now, I don't encourage everybody to run right off and go get on antidepressants any more than I encourage people to not get on antidepressants. The way that I gauge it is, do you feel like 
you are white knuckling your way through your life? Are you gripping so hard that all you can see are white knuckles and you're going to lose your hold here soon? Then you need to get extra help. Just because you get on antidepressants doesn't mean you have to stay on antidepressants. And it, the best defense and uh, coping for depression, research has proven to be a combination of behavioral changes with medication. That is your best tool, arsenal, to combat your emotional cancer. Now, I'm just going to end with a plea. Please don't beat yourself up and think that you caused this. You can't cause depression in yourself any more than you can cause yourself to have asthma or heart disease or diabetes or any of the other illnesses that we don't feel ashamed of having. You did not go to the store and say, hey, Please sign me up for an extra dosage of depression because my life isn't hard enough. You're not asking for this. You didn't ask for this and nothing you did did this. And you cannot will your way out of brain chemicals. It's impossible. If you could, we would have done it. You cannot sit there and think, I need more serotonin. I need more serotonin. And all of a sudden, you have more serotonin. And society needs to get on board and destigmatize in honesty, not just lip service. Oh, yeah, yeah. People who have these issues need help. Yeah, they do. And they're not getting it because they don't want to admit that they have it because they don't want everybody looking at them like there's something wrong. They're a leper. They're weak. They already hate themselves as much as anybody can. You're not helping. The only way you can help with this is to let them know that getting help is how you get strong and how you can live your life. There's nothing wrong with people who suffer from depression. 